How many of you recall the first time you took communion? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you? For any of you that were raised in a high liturgy church, perhaps Catholic, there's a really beautiful tradition that celebrates and memorializes First Communion. But if you were like me, growing up in a loosely Christian, non-denominational home, you may not even remember it. Unfortunately, I do remember my First Communion. I was with my uncle and aunt. Uh, he was a pastor at a local four-square church up in Portland, and I'd stayed the night with my cousins, and so I went with them to church the next day. I was about eight or nine years old, I think. When time came for communion, it was very similar to what we have today, uh, trays with a cup full of juice and a piece of bread, and they passed in front of me, not knowing what I was doing, and because I was slightly hungry, I threw the piece of bread in my mouth and started to chew it, and my aunt elbowed me and said, not yet, so I proceeded to spit it out back into my hand. I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to take it yet and hold on to it and continue listening to the pastor. And so as the pastor began to speak about the meaning of communion, I sat there with this gross thing in my hand, definitely was not the body of Christ at that point, and I remember having a realization that I knew nothing about this gospel that he was talking about, this symbolism of this cup and this bread. Behind this simple idea, there was an amazing story of provision. It was provision for the people of God, but it was provision for me too, even at eight or nine years old. And it was provision in the midst of people's most desperate need, but I'd almost missed it because I'd glossed over it. And since that moment, I can't even tell you the number of times in my own personal walk that the Lord has visited me and met me in the midst of communion. Hopefully it's the same for you as well. The Lord's Supper has been a time where he's visited me in conviction, in encouragement, in revelation, in love. And yet I wonder how often I've gone to the table of communion out of rote tradition, with my mind elsewhere, planning about the week, and then I've missed the incredible nature of the provision that the Lord's table symbolizes. How many times have I missed the weight of the meaning behind the meal that we take every Sunday? In our story today, we will witness a similar meal with similar weight. And it's another of Jesus' miracles as he feeds 5,000 people, at least. And it's feeding with an improbably small amount of food. And on its surface, it's an incredible miracle that shows God's provision. And oftentimes, I hear Christians use it as the example of the fact that God can do anything he wants. He can pay your bills. He can do these material things, and that's good, and that's not wrong. Um, and that's at the heart of the story as well. But I think by doing that, we somehow gloss over it. Just as I was simply hungry and wanted to eat the piece of bread, I think we miss the underlying meaning of the story if we move over it too quickly. What it is is an amazing retelling of, an, of the author trying to get us to look underneath to see the weight of what's being communicated. And interestingly, this story that we're going to cover today, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle shared between all four Gospels. All four authors saw fit to put it in their Gospels, so it's obviously important. And it must, therefore, have huge symbolism for all of them and for the early church. And so it begs for our attention and even our awe this morning as we read it. And if we can pull back the shroud a bit, it's my estimation that we'll never look at Jesus the same way. And this morning, when we look at Mark chapter 6... We're going to see the provision of God in desolate places. If you're taking notes, you can write that down as the title for today's sermon, The Provision of God in Desolate Places. Now, as we've done over the last few months of looking at Mark, we're going to begin with a bit of biblical theology to see the thematic background that gives us more understanding as to the author's intention and point. Hopefully, one of the things you're seeing as we go through Mark is that you can't read the gospel in a vacuum. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading it and looking at it and, and starting there, but in order to understand it, you have to understand and go back and look at the Old Testament, and that's why we're a church that does biblical backgrounds in a lot of the teachings we do to help you see what the author is trying to get at. And so again, I hope that you are ready to cover a lot of Scripture this morning. Throughout the Bible, we see that when we encounter desolate places, two things take place. First, God's provision, and secondly, our testing. And that's the first main point I want you to write down today. Desolate places are where we see God's provision and the testing of allegiance. God's provision and the testing of allegiance. I want you to think with me how many times this happens throughout the Word. Those of you that may even just have a cursory overview knowledge of the, the Word, you know that this happens time and again. 
We're very good at remembering this in the wilderness wanderings and trials of Israel. But think with me about how many times desolation is met with God's provision and the testing of his people. It's a pretty large list, but for our purposes this morning, I'm going I'm to condense it down a bit. And this is one of the core characteristics of God is that he is our provider. He provides for us. So let's sit, hit some of the high points here this morning first. The first one we see right there at the beginning of the Bible, many of you are familiar with it, is the story of creation. You've got this chaotic earth in Genesis 1-1, or Genesis 1-2. The Bible says that the earth was without form and void. Tohu vabohu. You guys like saying that one? Say it again. Tohu vabohu. A few weeks ago when we went through this, tohu vabohu in the Hebrew is without form and void. And the word void is similar in meaning to desolate or uninhabited. The earth was desolate in that time. But then what happened was God took out of this chaotic desolation, he formed in the midst of it a beautiful garden into which he placed his people. Out of the desolate earth, he then provided a feast. Humanity could eat any of the fruit of the the garden except for one tree. And it was with that tree that we were tested as humanity. Would we stay true and obedient to Yahweh? Or would we fall to our own opinions, feelings, and desires? And what was the answer? The answer is that Eve fell and Adam fell to their own opinions and desires, deciding what was right for themselves rather than trusting in the living God. That was right there at the beginning. Fast forward a little bit further on, you could find other stories that lead to this or lend themselves to this, but a little bit further on, you see Israel in the book of Exodus. And they're called by God to follow him out of the luscious, fertile Nile Valley where they had a meager existence as slaves in Egypt to go into the wilderness, a desolate place. And there God met their needs, didn't he? You guys remember the words of Moses to Israel, that they were to remember this, that God was the one that met their needs? Why don't you look there in Deuteronomy 8.1 if you're there already. It says, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Look down there at verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. You have to remember and see here what the Lord is doing. He's, He's telling the people, remember that it was me that provided for you. You weren't on your own. You didn't do this by the strength of your own power. It was in the wilderness that they were tested, and yet, even with this reminder, they rebelled again and again, testing the Lord's patience, testing his authority, testing his provision. Look with me at the first place that this story of God's bread is noted back in Exodus. Go with me uh, to Exodus uh, 16, 1 through 8. Exodus 16, 1 through 8. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, what are they forgetting here? Does anybody want to shout it out? What are they forgetting? They sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. They were slaves, right? Oh, man, those days back when we were enslaved and we didn't have our own freedom, but boy, we had meat pots. 
Are we talking hot pockets here or what? What is it that they're so worried about? Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. It was in the wilderness that they were tested, and yet they rebelled again and again. God produced water. They rebelled. God produced quail. They rebelled. God produced manna. They rebelled. God kept their clothes going for 40 years. They rebelled. God cared for them and protected them in the midst of enemy attacks, and they rebelled. Over and over again, the people didn't look at the blessing that God had given them. What did they look at? They looked at what they didn't have and how it wasn't up to their standards and how life wasn't going the way they wanted it. Are we much different than Israel? Are we? No, we're not. Look with me at the, um, uh, oh, sorry, excuse me. Um, next, let's look at the fact that in the drought and the famine that comes across Israel in the time of the kings, it was the exact same thing. God's provision and the people's testing. And this story is also core to the background to our story today. Why don't you guys go ahead and turn to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. We see another example during the time of the wicked king Ahab. There was a famine that lasted three years and six months, and the crops of Israel failed, and they had no Winco or Costco to go buy in bulk in order to deal with like we do today. Anybody say coronavirus, right? Rather than being on our knees praying for the people that are getting sick, we're all stocking up because that's how we're going to survive is by our own power. You can see that we're no different a people today than we were back then. The crops of Israel here were failing, and the vegetation dries up, and again, the promised land was a desolate place. And Elijah proclaimed this drought upon the people to test their hearts as they had fallen away from the living God. But in the midst of that, the small band of faithful followers of Yahweh, the remnant still served to bring God's provision to those that would submit to him. And the stories during this time that are in focus are God's provision not to the Jews because they'd already rebelled against him, but God's provision to the Gentiles through his prophets. He says to Elijah at one point that he had reserved a small group of followers to last through this because his own people wouldn't repent. And so here in 1 Kings 17, there's an interesting story of one of those prophets, Elijah, and he goes and he cares for a widow that is not a Jew. She's a Gentile. Look at verse 8 of chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she replied, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Die of what? Starvation. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. Now, why would he say this? This sounds kind of selfish. Make me some food before you make some for yourself, right? Well, that's not what he's doing. He's testing her faith in the Lord's provision. Verse 14, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And so the reality here is that God provided in the midst of desolation, and it was to test the reliance of the people, to test the allegiance of the people. Now, don't hear me wrong, okay? I'm not saying in the current situation with everybody worried about coronavirus that you shouldn't stock up on food and you should just sit in your house and pray that your one marshmallow will feed your family for two weeks. That's not what I'm saying, okay? 
It's wise and smart to, to be smart about stewarding what you have. What I am saying is that when things hit, when trials break, when temptations come, when desolation is what you see around you, it's a big question of what are you going to do with it? Are you going to scramble and figure out how you can make your way through it, or are you going to look to the Lord and look to his provision, look to his care? Well, after Elijah was taken to heaven, his mantle of prophet was handed to Elisha. And look at one of the stories uh, that talks about God's provision through Elisha. This is up on the screen, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42. In the midst, again, of desolation, in the midst of famine, Elisha is with the, uh, the sons of the prophets, a group that are his disciples. And it says, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, that's Elisha, bread of the first fruits. Okay, so they just harvested and they barely had enough. It says, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the, man, uh, to the men, meaning those with him, that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before 100 men? 20 loaves, 100 men. Okay, these aren't loaves like we talk about today. They're small loaves, enough for a person to barely get enough to eat. So he says, give it to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he let it sit before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. God provided through the famine to those that were his own. And in the midst of this desolation, the people of Israel's allegiance and trust of Yahweh was tested. God always provided. This story right here in front of us, again too, is core to the background of our text today in Mark 6. To the Jewish hearers that would be listening to the gospel according to Mark, they would be having these stories ringing in their mind. One more as background that I'll give you, and then we'll move to our text today. The last thing I want us to think about is the temptation of Jesus in the desolate place of the wilderness. Recognizing this theme of the idea of desolation as the place where God meets us with provision and he tests us, the temptation of Christ becomes more understandable. You see, God's people, whether Adam and Eve or the people of Israel, had always fallen in the midst of the temptation. You and I would have done the exact same thing. We do today. No matter what provision they were given, they seemed to whine and complain and groan. Again, does this sound familiar, right? Who has two thumbs and does this exact same thing? This guy, right? All of you probably do the exact same thing. We all whine and complain and groan and say, Lord, why isn't my life the way I want it? But this is why the first temptation that Satan throws towards Christ when Christ is in the desolate place is so amazing. He doesn't just randomly choose temptations. He's testing in the exact same way. The gospel according to Matthew gives us the detail of what was tested. You might remember it. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, again, a desolate place, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, you think? <laughs> That's Hans's edition, not the word. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Sound familiar? We just read it a few moments ago. It was literally from Deuteronomy where Moses is reminding the people, if you are obedient, you will realize, guys, this fact, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is tempted with the same trial as God's people all the way up until Matthew through the entire Old Testament to limit the provision and not trust the provision of the Father God. But Jesus passes with flying colors. Why? Because he was perfect Israel. He was the perfect Adam. He was the perfection of mankind. He was the true obedient human. He was the victor over the temptations of the enemy. And the enemy was tempting him to break allegiance with his father God, the creator God. And instead, Jesus, rather than doing that, pressed further into the father, quoting the very scripture that Moses reminded the people of Israel so many hundreds of years before. Man does not exist on bread alone, but by, by the breath of life, the very word of God. And this sets the background for our story this morning in Mark chapter 6. Why don't you turn there with me? Mark chapter 6, verse 30. If you're sitting here thinking, oh man, I'm new to this Bible stuff and you just overloaded my brain, that's okay. You can go back and read it. Our stuff is online. You'll be able to, to go back through these same verses and study it this week. But part of the reason we do this background is so that we don't go into the gospel blind. We go in with the knowledge that the hearers would have had 
understanding what the author is trying to get across. Let's take a look there at the first few verses in Mark 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to, what are the words there? A desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a, what are the words there? By themselves, desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So let's pause there for a second. Here are the apostles, the sent ones of God, sent as ambassadors on the expedition to conquer the countryside with the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God. They've finally returned. And they return with this idea of, hey, we did what you said. We followed your orders, Jesus. We taught. Um, we healed. And so he says, awesome. And then he immediately calls them away to a desolate spot to rest. Now, three times in this section, you'll see the phrase desolate place. You'll already, you've already seen them twice. Three times out of a grand total in the entire book of Mark of six. So half of the times of saying desolate place are here in this small section. The author's trying to get our attention with this phrase. The desolate place was where Jesus went to connect with the Father in an earlier chapter. And in the history of both the Old and New Testaments, uh, on into the beginnings of the church, the patristics, the monastics of the early church, it was understood that the desolate place, the wilderness, was the place you went to connect with God, to see his provision, to refocus your allegiance and faith so that you could be one with him. You never see monasteries built in the middle of New York City right? You see them out in the countryside in France and in Germany and in Spain, right? Out in the quote-unquote wilderness, the desolate place. People would go there to refocus on the Lord away from, today, it would be cell phones and email and Twitter and Facebook and all of the things that draw us away from the Lord. Back then, it was similar. They just didn't have technology that was drawing them away. The problem in the situation before us is that they're tracked down. Jesus wants to pull them away to go and focus on Yahweh. They might have a little bit of pride building. That might be the reason he's drawing them away. He wants them to refocus, not think that they have the power in themselves. But the problem is, is that they're tracked down. People literally run around the lake watching their boat to try and track them. And then we see Mark 6.34, and this gives us the crux of the passage today that we need to really focus in. Here we see the main point that, that Mark is trying to convey. Verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus shows up here and he sees these people and rather than be frustrated like many of us would be that his plans were now uh, being turned, he says, no, instead I'm going to have compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. The second point you can write down for our teaching today is this. Jesus is the fulfilled provision of the perfect shepherd king. Jesus is the fulfilled provision of the perfect shepherd king. Now you might think, what do you mean by that, Hans? Well, we'll break it down as we go here. Jesus is the fulfilled provision of the perfect shepherd king. This idiom of sheep without a shepherd is used throughout Scripture as a statement to describe Israel without a leader or worse yet, with an evil leader that's leading them astray. In certain places, it is used as a word of contempt by God, from God, for the kings, prophets, and priests of Israel that were leading them in the way of idolatry. Here are a few of those statements that we're going to break down. In the book of Numbers, this is the first one I'm going to give you. In the book of Numbers, as Moses is dialoguing with God before his death, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and asks God to provide someone for them that will lead them in his ways. And while it's immediately answered by Joshua in the story, Joshua the son of Nun, right? He steps up and he leads the people. He's the one that this book of Joshua is mainly about. Moses' statement is considered one of the messianic uh, hopes that's given to Israel um, that a Messiah would one day come and be the perfect shepherd over Israel. Let's take a look at it there. Numbers 27, 15 through 17. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. 
So this is a very well-known passage talking about the fact that, God, we need a Messiah. We need a leader. And this is what happens every political year, right? I am dreading this next year, right? Because every political year, we need a shepherd. Yes, we do. It is not any of the men standing on the podium, current or future, right? We hope that this man or this woman that comes up is going to be finally the one who's going to shepherd us. That's our heart's cry. That's the same cry as Moses in Numbers 27, but no human is going to fill it. Why? Because it's already been filled. The job is held, and it's held by Jesus Christ. In 1 Kings, another one here. You can write this one down. This is 1 Kings twenty-two seventeen. The prophet of God named Micaiah is being used by God to trick King Ahab into going into battle so he can be killed. And King Ahab tells him to speak the truth to him. So Micaiah delivers a word from the Lord that tells Ahab that he is not leading Israel in a way that glorifies Israel's covenant God. And this is what he says. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. This idiom, this idea of sheep without a shepherd is very well known. Well, this condemnation of false leaders reaches its apex, its climax, through the words of the prophet Ezekiel. I told you we were going to cover a lot of scripture today. Go to Ezekiel 34. That's in the middle of your Bible. If you're at Psalms, you can go a little bit to the right and you'll find it. Ezekiel 34. And if you're one of those people that's going, man, I still, after 40 years, don't have the books of the Bible memorized. It's okay. That's why there's a table of contents. Start there. Find Ezekiel. Go to that number. Then turn a few pages to find the chapter. You're in good company. I still have to do that when it comes to the minor prophets. All right. Here, what we're going to see is, again, this idea that the political and religious leaders of Israel's people had become power-hungry and greedy for their own gain. And they were leading the people away from the true worship of Yahweh, and so he calls them out. Let's take a look here. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherd feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. A little bit harsh, huh? But rightly so. Ezekiel is slamming the leaders saying, you're all about yourself. You're all about your position, your power, your success, your greed, your money. Sounds much like the leaders of 2020, doesn't it? In the church and outside. But notice how Ezekiel continues on. In the midst of the condemnation, he pivots and suddenly starts delivering on an amazing messianic prophecy that God made, promise that God makes. You see, God is a God of provision in the most desolate place. The people here were in desolation. They were being fed on by their very shepherds that were supposed to lead them. And so God pivots here, and it shows that our God is an amazing shepherd that loves to tend to his sheep. Take a look at verse 11 there. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, God says, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country." 
I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture, and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Skip down to verse 29 with me. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. Already you're starting to see this amazing picture that the gospel authors are trying to give us. On the mountains of Israel, God himself will come as the Messiah and feed his sheep, those that are lost. Are you starting to see why background is so important to this story? The prophet Jeremiah gives a very similar statement of messianic hope, okay? One more long stretch of, of um, scripture here. Turn with me to Jeremiah, and then we'll go back to looking at Mark. Jeremiah 23. And if your head is spinning already, don't worry. Just take down the notes and study through it this week a few times, and it will make a ton of sense to you as you do. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. You can see how this is a massive theme among the prophets calling out the people of Israel, specifically the leaders. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but they will say, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Our story today is set in the north country. It's set in a place known as Galilee. And notice that the end of this section speaks of the Messiah to come as one who would lead the people Israel, the new Israel, one made up of both Jews and Gentiles into a new exodus and would provide for them in the midst of that exodus, much like Moses had done in the wilderness. These stories repeating over and over, ringing out through the ears of the hearers is what would have been going on as they listened to Mark chapter 6. One of the rabbinic traditions that came from this is the messianic expectation that like Moses, the Messiah to come would prove himself by giving his people bread from heaven. Now connect the dots with me a bit more. This is why after Jesus does a similar recorded miracle in Mark 8 to feeding 4,000 instead of 5,000, this is what happens. 
The Pharisees come and begin to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. What were they testing? They were testing that he's the Messiah, spoken of in Jeremiah, spoken of in Ezekiel, spoken of in Numbers. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Why is Jesus so exasperated? Because he already did the sign. He already did it. And they're like, hey, we need another one. This is what drives me nuts about us. I will say us as Christians. I just don't know where God is in my life. He's, he's just not helping me. He's not providing for me. The cross. The cross. Well, not in this immediate situation. The cross doesn't help me at all. The cross. He's just not helping me right now in my present trial. He must not be a good God. The cross. Do I need to say it again? Jesus has provided everything for you. Your current temptation or trial is piddly in comparison. And I don't care what it is. Even in your world, if it is maximum, it is minute in eternity. The cross. He's already provided for it. He sighed and was so heartbroken because they were missing it. Now, the cross hadn't happened here, but what had happened was Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 7, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. In the gospel according to John, the author goes into much more detail. Turn there with me now to John chapter 6. Why don't you go there with me? John 6, 25. And notice that at the beginning of chapter 6 in your Bibles, in verse 1 there, the title probably above chapter 6 is Jesus feeds the 5,000. And it leads into this Discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the crowds in John 6, 25. Look there. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, he knows the heart of man. He knows that we don't really care if he's our king or not as long as we get ours. And he calls them out immediately. Brother and sister, are you at this church on Sunday morning because you want to hear something that makes you feel encouraged, makes you feel happy and peppy, makes you feel good about life? Are you here to hear the word of God that may be convicting, may be encouraging, but overall is his word? See, the reality is many Christians, we go to church because we are there to serve ourselves, to feed ourselves, but the reality is, is we're here to glorify God and care for one another. And that's the point of being a Christian. And Jesus calls them out because he knows their heart. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Okay, everybody look back at the beginning of chapter 6. What's the title above chapter, chapter 6? Feeding of the 5,000. Okay. Hey, we need another one. Can you help us again? I know that 5,000 thing was pretty big, but let's try this again. Okay. Then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That is, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said, to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because they said, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? 
You see, they're testing him. This background we've gained today, even though it's been a lot of scripture, it tells us what's going on here. They said, Jesus, we need to see that you are the Messiah, so bring manna from heaven. He said, guys, you've already seen it. Why are you testing me again? I am the bread of life. I am the very manna God has given you to survive. And they said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? You're just Yeshua. We know your parents, dude. What are you talking about? You see, all of this struggle that's going on here is the fact that Jesus is proving who he is and no one wants to believe him. You see, the difficulty here was that in feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had fulfilled the rabbinic hope that the Messiah to come would feed the people bread from heaven. But in the minds of the religious leaders, these false shepherds, feeding 5,000 with five loaves was not a clear enough sign. So Jesus gets into it with them in John 6 and says, you guys are looking for miracles and I've already shown them. But the main miracle is that he's come to forgive us of our sinful rebellion against Yahweh and join us in relationship with him so that we'll rise at the resurrection of the end of days. And then he says, and I'm that guy that's going to help you. And they're so upset that they respond with, dude, we know you. You're not the Messiah. But in this miracle, with the background of Scripture we've gone into in depth, you see that Mark is portraying this truth, that Jesus is the Messiah. In this miracle, he is indeed stating clearly with numeric detail how great a miracle it was. But that's not the primary point of this. In other words, it's not the primary point that Jesus can make something appear out of nothing. It's not the primary point that Jesus will indeed provide for you in desolate places. The main point is that Jesus is the Messiah for God's people. Sent to pay for our sins is the perfect sacrifice, but even more so, sent to lead God's people in glorious procession out of the kingdom of darkness. Go back with me to Mark chapter 6, and we'll continue there in verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a, what are the words there? Desolate place. Okay, you can see the pattern there. This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's eight months of salary for an individual Jew, right? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Interesting that as concise an author as Mark is, that he includes that phrase. He asks them to sit on the green grass in groups. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Five loaves, two fish, 5,000 men. You guys see what the author's doing here? He's connecting back to almost all of the places we've looked at for background using wonderfully concise literary skill, all of it to answer the thematic question that's been ringing in our ears throughout Mark, that question of who do you say that Jesus is? With this story, this one story, Mark tells us a few different things. You can write these down. First, he tells us Jesus is the better Elijah. He's the perfect prophet. With these numbers that he's talking about, of provision. Jesus is the better Elijah. He's the perfect prophet. He's the prophet to end all prophets. He's the final word from our creator God. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha had 20 loaves of barley, and yet he only fed 100 men. Still a miracle, but pales in comparison. Jesus is the perfect prophet who was able to feed a crowd of, a thousand, of thousands with five loaves and two fish. Jesus is the perfect prophet. Second, we see that Jesus is the better David, the perfect king. The better David, the perfect king. All of the messianic statements from Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak of David coming and ruling his people. David was the forerunner of the perfect king, the sinless king that was truly the most perfect God-man after God's own heart to ever walk on this planet. And Jesus is that perfect king. Third, we see that in ordering the story in the way that Mark has, he's repeating the story of the wilderness wanderings, and yet there is perfect provision. Remember how it says uh, in Exodus 
that Moses got super tired and he got tired of providing for the people. And so he goes to his father-in-law and says, Jethro, I'm overburdened. What do I do? And Jethro says, you need to have helpers, leaders, and then break down the people into 50s and 100s in smaller groups. This is from Exodus 18, 24 through 25. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, the apostles fulfilling this role in Mark chapter 6. Chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. In Mark, the separation of the people into various groups to be served by the apostles mimics and mirrors the division of leadership in the people of Israel as they were led and provided for. Mark is picturing the apostles as the elders of the new Israel and Jesus as the better Moses, the perfect shepherd king of the people. And so there we see that Mark is not only repeating the story of the Exodus, but he's telling us that he is the better Moses, the perfect shepherd king. And lastly, fourthly, we see that Jesus is in fact the ultimate shepherd, God himself. Remember that in Ezekiel, it is God himself who is the shepherd. Ezekiel 13, uh, 34, 13 through 15, it says, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. Mark is capturing in fine detail the fact that Jesus here is God. He's sitting his people down on green grass to be fed on the mountains of Israel. Jesus is the one better than Moses, the one better than David, the one better than Elijah and Elisha. He is the Messiah. He is God himself become man amongst us. He's calling us from all the nations to be his own that he might provide for us, protect us, and draw us to himself. Mark is stating unequivocally that Jesus is the Messiah shepherd king that God has provided to save his people. When the people of God were stuck in their own rebellion and idolatry and could not see a way to stay faithful to their covenant identity, God promised provision of a Messiah, of a shepherd king. When you and I were in the desolate place of our own sin, separated from God and from one another by the fleshly nature and selfishness that courses through our veins, God saw you and I in our lowly state. And he promised that one would come, a Messiah, shepherd king, that would come and provide a way for us to step back into relationship with the Father. He would lay down his own life on the cross, a shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. He would lay his life down on the cross of Calvary and resurrect in victorious new life to provide us the way to eternity. On that cross, he took on the burden of your sin and mine so that the righteousness of God could do away with those things forever, that he might free us from the enslavement we have to, to sin and so that forgiveness might come. This text speaks clearly to us that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these promises from God the Father to you and I. Jesus was and is the provision of God in the desolate place. You see how this is truly an awesome, weighty, power-packed story that the writer of each of the four Gospels wanted us to understand and truly take in. They all included it so that we could know that Jesus is, once and for all, the Messiah. Great, Hans. So what do we do with it now, you might say? Well, my last point this morning, as the perfect shepherd king, Jesus has provided. So take and eat. As the perfect shepherd king, Jesus has provided, so take and eat. One of the less obvious storylines of this section is the fact that while this idea of using the miracle to purposefully show Jesus as the Messiah might be missed by us, it was not missed by the attendees to the miracle. They knew what he was doing in that moment. Do you remember at the start of the story in Mark, it says that they were running to meet him and tracked him down? The northern portion of Israel, the desolate portion in particular, was known to be a location of zealots and resistance and uprising. It was the location where staged militants would gather in order to be able to attack incoming armies. In other words, the pretty paintings that have Jesus with a big grin feeding smiling mothers and babies is probably a bit of a misunderstanding of this story. Most likely, they were the 5,000 was battle-trained men, most of them zealots. They were hunting Jesus down to make him their general. 
And Mark finishes with the statement that it fed 5,000 men. And there's many different commentaries that say, well, maybe that's just the men, and then there were women and babies in addition. But the reality here is 5,000 was a well-known number. It's a known number of soldiers in a Roman legion. And it's also the amount of Galilean men that the Jewish historian Josephus say gathered to face off against the Roman army in Galilee in this place in 67 AD, the exact same timing as when the book of Mark was written. Roughly the same time period that, that this was happening, Mark is saying Jesus was amassing an army. And the Gospel of John confirms this idea as it talks about this in John chapter 6. Right at the end of the miracle of the 5,000, John includes this fine detail. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. See, they knew all the background. And so what did they say? They said, you need to be our leader. You're the one who's going to lead us as the Messiah. But perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Well, wait a minute, Hans. I thought you said that Jesus was our shepherd king. Why didn't he let them be king? Why didn't they let, he let them take him as king? Because he didn't want to be their kind of king. They wanted a political general. They wanted someone to attack in the ways of the world. He wanted to be their true king, their spiritual king. Notice that they get it. Jesus is the Messiah. But they mistakenly believe that, the, uh, that uh, in a way that means that he will support them in their zealot uprising. But Jesus didn't come to create an earthly military army motivated by political allegiances. Okay, for all of you who are waiting for this next election cycle, let me say that again. Jesus did not come to create an earthly military army motivated by political allegiances. He came to build a spiritual army, allegiant to the Father God and not to a political party. Our application for today is from this vantage point with this idea. Jesus is the shepherd king. He's our shepherd king. He's the He's the Messiah of the people of God. He's made that possible by his death and resurrection. But what then? You see, just like the zealots around Jesus, surrounding him during this story, I find that you and I often look to Jesus for a mere temporary relief instead of the greater limitless provision that Christ wants to give us. We look at this story and we say, great, Jesus can provide for our needs. Jesus, this is my need today. That's why most of us, when we pray, we start with, dear Lord, this is what I need. And we finish with, thank you for hearing my prayer. We forget thanksgiving. We forget praise. We forget honor. We forget glory. And we simply say, this is what I need. We turn him into a genie and a lamp rather than the king of kings and lord of lords. They were looking for Jesus to be their military leader and help them achieve immediate political freedom from Rome. But they didn't understand that Jesus had come for a much larger purpose. Jesus came to free them from all oppression, including the oppression of their own sin and idolatry that separated them from their creator God. We need that same provision. And so the first point of application this morning as we finish up is that as we remember and see Jesus as this shepherd king that is the bread that comes from heaven, as the one who is provided for us, we need to take that to the table of communion. And as we grab the bread and the cup, we need to understand that Jesus is feeding us. He's feeding us with eternity. He's feeding us with justice and righteousness. He's feeding us with forgiveness and salvation. The early church viewed this story in Mark chapter 6 as a precursor to the communion meal that Jesus instituted during the Last Supper with his disciples. And both of these were a precursor to the eventual messianic feast that would take place in the victory at the end of days at the resurrection. Notice in Mark 6:41 there, it says, "In taking the five loaves, he took them, he looked up to heaven, set a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people." The same exact wording is used in Mark 14 when we'll get there to talk about the Passover meal, the Last Supper. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, "Take, this is my body." This idea of taking, giving thanks, breaking it, and giving it. The usual prayer when the bread would be broken in the Jewish home was this. Praise be to you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. It's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? Some three decades later, 
The apostle John writes his gospel account of Jesus. And in his account of the conversation of Jesus with the Pharisees, he draws the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and the Eucharist. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Otherwise, I'll just read it. In John chapter 6, in verse 52, after he's done this discussion about the fact that he is the bread that comes from heaven, the author John, writing this somewhere around 90 to 100 AD, he includes this in order to tell the original church the connection to the Eucharist, to the eating of the bread and the body uh, and the, the blood of Christ. In verse 52, he says this, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it, right? Our Catholic brothers and sisters take this a bit far in believing that the bread and cup that we hold during communion have become the body and blood of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation in their view, that we literally hold Jesus' body and blood, and that the act of communion is one of the sacraments required to gain the merit of Jesus. Now, we do not believe the same thing as Protestants. But what we do believe is that in taking communion, we are uniting with Christ through his presence that dwells within his body, the church, by way of his Holy Spirit. And we are declaring that we accept the sacrifice of his body and blood on our behalf. We are declaring that he is the perfect provision of God given freely for us. In a moment, we're going to take communion together as a church. And if you are a person who's in here who has never fully grasped the idea of giving your life to Jesus because he died for you, I'm going to ask you to let the cup pass by. You can just stay in your seat because we're going to get up and go to the table. And you can just stay in your seat and, and know that if you want to step into allegiance to Christ and relationship with him, you can do that. Today is the day. If you want to do that today, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I want to follow Jesus as Lord, I want to follow him as King, then I would say get up with the rest of us. Walk to the table of communion because we are sinners saved by grace just like you. Take of the cup, take of the bread, hold on to it and go back to your seat and sit down and wait for us all to participate together. If you've not accepted Christ's gift of, uh, gift of sacrifice for your sins and you haven't accepted his drawing of you into his people, then today is the day for you to do that. We'll do that together in a minute. This gift of salvation is the greater gift that God is providing for you and for me. And that's the main, first main point of application this morning. But one second point of application that I'm going to give you today, and I'll finish with this, is that God provides not just in the desolation of our own sin, but in the desolate places that we encounter in everyday life, in the places where we feel lost and alone. We look to Jesus and to his message to bring us some immediate gratification to save us from our sadness or our brokenness. But I want to tell you that immediate consolation is not his main aim. The Lord allows us to come to him in the midst of these broken times, these desolate places, so that we can see the fullness of his provision, not just gain what we think might be best. For example, when we hit relational conflict, whether that be between friends or spouses or between parent and child, oftentimes we want Jesus to simply make us feel better rather than calling us to the more sustaining and long-lasting work that is required to bring reconcil reconciliation and mutual upbuilding. You see, when Jesus is trying to visit you in the desolate place of a busted-up marriage, what he's trying to tell you is, do the hard work of obeying my commands and loving your spouse even when they're unlovable. That is long-lasting. Making you feel better with the Sunday happy-feeling service ain't going to cut it. If you're a parent who's wrestling with a, a tough situation with the child, he's not calling you to just feel better and comfortable with a cotton candy sermon on a Sunday. He's calling you to do the hard work of praying for that child, loving that child, 
encouraging that child and calling them into his kingdom through your own love. That's long-lasting. That's eternal. Maybe you're a person who's sitting there going, Lord, my bank account is empty and I need provision. Well, Jesus doesn't want to just throw a couple bucks in your bank account. He wants to teach you how to be a good steward of what he has given you so you stop wasting his money. He wants to call you to the long-lasting provision of becoming a good steward who gives tribute to the king and serves others with your money. You see, Jesus doesn't want to give you the cotton candy answer. He wants to give you the steak and potatoes that will last you. When we have trials and tribulation, we want him to tell us it will be okay rather than having to sit in the fact that the reason we deal with death, depression, anxiety, poverty, and more is because we live in a world gone wrong with sinful rebellion. It's in these situations where we can glory the most in the fact that only the shalom of Christ's reign will set it all right again. We want a myopic and short-sighted spiritual pat on the back rather than a refocusing of our minds and hearts towards eternity and the reign of Jesus over all creation. But if we see these desolate places instead as points in which we can refocus on eternity, we will stop viewing Christianity as a band-aid to negative emotions and discomfort and instead see it as salvation and a rally cry to proclaim the truth that Jesus is our perfect Messiah and shepherd king. If you're in a place of desolation right now, maybe even just simply internally, recognize that he is there in the midst of that desolate place. And he's calling you to more. He's calling you to obedience. He's calling you to know him as your own shepherd. That you can let everything else fade away and let Jesus lead you as the perfect shepherd of your soul. This week, if you're in a desolate place, I want you to read through and pray through Psalm 23 again that we read at the beginning. And as you meditate on it, I want you to lay down your trials and pains before the Lord. Maybe you need physical provision. Maybe you need the calm of still waters. Maybe you need protection in the presence of your enemies. Maybe you need assurance of eternal rest. Whatever it is, let the Lord minister to your heart as you meditate on it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.